going into the catechism, and so do I. So here's our plan, is that the catechism, if, how many people brought their catechism with them? Anybody didn't bring it? A few of you don't have it. Are there any more copies back there, Mon? There's one more for sale at $15. If you don't have 15 bucks, you can just borrow it for the evening. Um, I had another one sitting around here. It's a little white one. Mon, is that still back there? Oh, you have it. Okay, no, you can borrow it. Hold that up, though. If you don't like carrying around this big old book, this is a nice size version that you can buy. All right. Our goal, of course, is not going to be to get through this entire thing in four sessions. I did that to you with the Bible series, and I don't think you appreciated it very much. Right, Norma? That's all right. Just say yes. Um, so what are we going to get through? Well, we're going to get through at least part of the first part. All right? And uh, we're going to talk about the structure of the first part of the catechism, the structure of the catechism as a whole, so you get a sense of what it is. So you get a sense of what it is and how to use it. Because there's no way I possibly can, uh, you know, download all the information, nor do I want to do that. I'm, I simply want to give you some guidelines as we make our way through. Come on, everybody. Stick together here. As we make our way through the catechism, we're going to be reading certain paragraphs and skipping others, which means you can go back and read along during the week to kind of maybe hit some of those points that I didn't touch on that you would like to know a little bit more about, okay? So we're going to go back and forth between the Bible and the scriptures and kind of walking our way at least to the first part of the catechism. Um, the National Catechetical Directory states... That catechesis is primarily for whom? For first communion kids, who else? For confirmation kids, who else? RCIA or converts, who else? Alright. The National Catechetical Directory says that it's primarily for adults and not for kids. Okay? Now, it doesn't say it's not for kids, but it doesn't say that it's primarily for kids. It's catechesis is primarily for those who have the capability to understand. Children are coming to the age of understanding, and that's why as they grow up, we begin to catechize them slowly until we get them to the fullness of the faith, where they can appreciate and understand the fullness of the faith, and that's when they come to the stage of being adults. Okay? Catechesis is primarily for adults. At the stage of my little baby, 14 months old, I'm catechizing her. But the stage she has, that she's at, she knows to kiss Jesus. So I take her up to icons, I say, kiss Jesus, and she kisses Jesus. And that's about it. That's catechesis for her. Okay? But by the time, hopefully, she's 20 and 30 years old, then she'll really be studying the faith. Unfortunately... We stop catechizing at eighth grade for the most part, right? Or maybe freshman year in high school. At what stage? At what point do we say to our kids, catechesis is done if you just pass this year? It's a confirmation. Confirmation is like the bar Christian bar mitzvah, right? You're done. No, that's only the beginning. Unfortunately, that's where most of us ended up. That's where I ended up at eighth grade catechism. And hopefully 
was 16, 17, 18 years old. I, I just didn't care enough. Because at that critical stage when I should have been really diving the deepest into the faith, it wasn't. Okay, and so my my growth in my faith was stopped in eighth or in eighth grade or in seventh grade or in sixth grade, right? And then we're supposed to, or we expect ourselves to be able through our lives as forty-five and fifty and sixty-year-olds or whatever to know enough about the faith to be able to live as a Christian. When in any other area of our life, we would never do that. We would think that someone stopped at sixth or seventh or eighth grade doesn't know anything. And in fact, unfortunately for many of us, that's where we ended up. That's where I ended up. Um, I still remember the day when I was when I when I was faced with the question of Jehovah's Witness, the turning point in my life. I didn't have a clue what to say. Right? And I was uh, 21 years old. I was at the stage of maybe a six-year-old about the faith. Okay? So our goal here is to just, in a sense, to get a realization. I'm not going to be able to give you all the information, but to start to realize that there's so much out there to understand. There's so much there that we could spend the rest of our lives and not even scratch the surface. The catechism itself, as Americans, you know, today, we always want to, we always want the, the answer. And if we just go to the catechism class, we're going to get the answer. And I'm here to tell you I'm not going to give you the answer. Because the answer is awaiting us in another life. Okay, this is a book. My Bible's a book. And they're both dead. God is alive. And it is Him who we are studying. And so, no matter how much we study, it's only going to start to scratch the surface. Okay? Open up your catechism to paragraph one. You'll see, um, as you're opening it up there, to the left-hand side of your page, you'll see numbers. One, two, three, four. Not the Roman numerals. You'll see prologue and then paragraph number one. Before, before that. If you're at part one, you've gone too far. It's under prologue. Okay? I'm not telling you page numbers because we all have different page numbers. Yes. Yes. When was this catechism written? Uh, 92. 1992. Yes. All right. Thank you. In the 14th year of my pontificate, says Johannes Paulus II, on this other page across so where you're looking. Okay. Yes. All right. Paragraph number one. <clears throat> yes. What's wrong? Yes, it's on. It's on. It's on. Okay, who wants to read for us? Paragraph number one. You're asking me to do it. Yes! God inevitably comforts and blessed himself in a plan of sheer goodness, purely created man, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. Which page? Just read for Which page? Paragraph one. That's right. You go ahead and start over and speak up a little bit more, okay? Go ahead. Okay. 
God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, but in a plan of sheer goodness freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son as Redeemer and Savior. In his Son and through him, he invites men to become in the Holy Spirit his adopted children and thus heirs of his blessed life. Okay. As we work our way through the Catechism, we're going to come on all sorts of phrases that mean the same thing. Adopted children, partakers in divinity, image and likeness, covenant relationship. What else did I skip there? Children of God, friends of God. We're going to run into that in a few paragraphs. Heirs of his blessed life. Heirs of his, yes. We're going to find all sorts of phrases which really, in their theological background, mean the exact same thing. Okay? That God desires man to become a sharer in his own blessed life. Jennifer. Yes. I have a question. Why was your hand up? the faith. 
Because every turn you make, every question you have is answered by that desire which God has for man to partake in his own life. Every sacrament is designed to bring that about. The scriptures are designed to bring that about. Catechesis is not simply about learning formulae, certain definitions, they're helpful, certain prayers, they're helpful, but that's not what catechesis is about. Catechesis is primarily about growing in our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. I could memorize all the definitions in the world. I could know St. Thomas backwards and forwards and the catechism backwards and forwards, and I could go to hell. Catechesis is meant to bring about a fuller relationship, a growth in our relationship with Jesus Christ, our growth in our relationship with God. Turn to paragraph 25. We're going to skip around a little bit in this prologue. We're going to go right to the end. 25. Steve, you want to read that for us? Paragraph 25. To conclude the prologue, it is fitting to recall this pastoral principle stated by the Roman Catechism. The whole concern of doctrine and its teaching must be directed to the love that never ends. Whether something is proposed for belief, for hope, or for action, the love of our Lord must always be made accessible so that anyone can see that all works of perfect Christian virtue spring from love and have no other objective than to arrive at love. Okay, so same thing I was saying. The knowledge of the faith, if it simply stops at knowledge, the downloaded information is not enough. It must blossom from there to a reality in our own lives. It changes our way of life. As we come to know our Lord, we must come to love our Lord. Okay, and that's what catechesis is primarily all about. Turn back to paragraph 11 and 12. While we're doing that, what's yes. the Roman Catechism that he's referring to? The Roman Catechism is the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Okay. <clears throat> now, a point that you might want to know about that is simply, it's the same thing. Okay, the Roman Catechism, this Catechism, every Catechism, hopefully, is simply teaching the same thing in maybe a slightly different format, using different words, but the truth behind those words is all the same. They're pointing out the same reality. This Catechism reference, references the Roman Catechism constantly because the Roman Catechism or the Catechism of the Council of Trent is simply the last major catechism provided by the Church for the faithful throughout the world. Other smaller national catechisms have been written through time, but that's the last major one produced by Rome. And then this one. So there's all sorts of parallels between the two, showing that now they're the same thing, but this is putting maybe some newer language. Okay, makes it easier for modern man to understand. Okay? The aim and structure, what is the goal of the catechism and what is its structure? First of all, turn to paragraph 11 and 12. Let's just go ahead and read those, Sheila. This catechism aims at presenting an organic synthesis of the essential and fundamental contents of Catholic doctrine, as 
regards both faith and morals in the light of the Second Vatican Council and the whole of the Church's tradition. Its principal sources are the sacred scriptures, the fathers of the Church, the liturgy, and the Church's magisterium. It is intended to serve as a point of reference for the catechisms or compendia that are composed in the various countries. This work is intended primarily for those responsible for catechesis. First of all, the bishops, as teachers of the faith and pastors of the church. It is offered to them as an instrument in fulfilling their responsibility of teaching the people of God. Through the bishops, it is addressed to redactors and catechisms, to priests, and to catechists. It will also be useful reading for all other Christian faiths. Okay, in paragraph 11, it talks about some, about some sources which it uses. Okay? The sacred scriptures, the fathers. Who are the fathers? The fathers of the church. The fathers of the church um, are span a whole period of time. Okay, there's the anti-Nicene fathers, those before the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene fathers, those during the Council of Nicaea, and the post-Nicene fathers. And they usually you pretty much conclude the age of the fathers by the 6th and the, the very latest is 7th century. They throw a couple on at the end that are really good you know, commentators that are commentating uh, in the fashion of the fathers themselves and they'll give them that title, Fathers of the Church. And so it's just a reference saying, where are we getting this information that we're collecting here? And we got it for sources. They're the sources of theology. Any good theologian is going to make use of these four sources. When Dr. Marchner is here with you, you guys probably didn't notice. But as he taught you, I was sitting in the back of the room going, he's doing what he always does. It's because I've had like 45 classes from him. Is he just walks through the sources. A good theologian does that. He doesn't make up things and make them spicy and make them his own. A good theologian simply sets in order the tradition of the church. What the church has always taught. And so we have sacred scripture. You want to know about the Virgin Mary? You go to scripture. You go to what the tradition of the church in the early ages was, the patristics. The liturgy. Lex orande, lex credendi. Right? The, the law of prayer is the law of belief. If you want to know what somebody believes, you'll watch how they worship. <laughs> Similarly, when a theologian wants to go in, or when we want to go into the, into the faith deeper, we want to look at what the liturgy says, because it is a proof of what the church believes. Okay? I oftentimes say this, well, let's just say, I oftentimes say this to, um, to uh, Orthodox Christians that I meet, I say, they say, well, you know, as a, as a Catholic, you know, you have that stuff about the Pope and things, which Orthodox, for the most part, have a slightly different understanding on. And I say, look, you want to know what I believe? I believe the exact same thing you're, you're supposed to believe, because my prayers in my church are the same prayers you use in your church. If you want to know what you believe and I believe about the Pope, go to the Feast of St. Peter and Paul and read the text. You want to know about the Assumption of Mary? You go read the text for the feast, and you'll know what your church teaches. Stop making up things which your church doesn't historically has never taught. Okay? And so similarly, in the Roman church, or in the Catholic church as a whole, we go to the liturgy to find out what we believe, and the prayers will tell us the belief. Okay? It's the ancient tradition handed on. And the magisterium, the teaching body of the church. Okay? The bishops in union with the Pope. 
Okay? The magisterium is a living voice which hands on what we have always believed. Okay? From one generation to the next. Alright, in paragraph 12. Who is the catechism written for? Who is it first written for? Yeah, bishops, uh, priests. Who's next? Who goes in the line there? Catechists. That'd be myself. Pastors of parishes, Father McAfee and the other priests here. And then, but read me that sentence about the faithful. It will also be useful reading for all other yeah. Christian faithful. So is it primarily written for the faithful? No, not really. It's not. It's designed for people that actually have, a, well, maybe some of you do, but a background in theology. Okay? I want to point that out because some of the texts are kind of tough. And it's okay that they're hard. You can let those go or you can scan them and talk about them here. Okay? Other texts are very understandable. Most of the stuff's going to be understandable for you. Okay? Especially if you get an opportunity to talk about it. But don't be afraid when you get to something and you say, I don't know what they mean. How many of you ever heard of the, 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 the term magisterium before? How many have it? It's okay. Okay, come. Okay? It's okay to stop and say, I don't know what that means. Because sometimes I've got in my head... You know, I've, I've been doing this stuff for a number of years, and so it's it's right, it's on, it's on my, in my brain. But for you guys, it might need a little bit more, and so you can ask me that question, okay? The structure of the catechism itself, okay, is pointed out in the next paragraph. Excuse me, so what is magisterium? Yes. Magisterium is the teaching body of the church, okay? Primarily, primarily. That means the bishops in union with the Pope. But who else teaches in the church? Catechists, pastors, and even the faithful teach. Okay? So technically, the magisterium in the church, the bishops in union with the Holy Father. However, as we're going to find out, that communion with our bishop, communion within the body of Christ gives all of us a certain participation in a certain way with that magisterium. An ability to hand on the faith that we receive, but primarily a theological work is the bishops in union with the Holy Father. So magisterium put this together? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. What's the difference between the father of the church and the doctors of the church? I often hear that in terminology. Doctors of the church are, are um, men who have written, uh, usually written. And yeah. <laughs> men and women, yes. Men. <laughs> men who have written or have lived in such a way, it's not always just writing or teaching, but even lived in such a way that they are an example of, um, in a sense, a, 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 um, I don't know, a theologian which has gone to great heights. Like Saint Thomas. We, what's that? Like Saint, like Saint Thomas, but like who else? Truth. Right. Truth. Right. Truth. Right. Truth. 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 But the way she lived her life and her writings are so filled with theology that she is given the title of Doctor of the Church, which, yeah, which just shows, which just shows that, which just shows that it's not simply a matter of learning to become holy. Knowledge is important, 
But first and foremost, it's a way of life. Okay, and that way of life opens up to the person who shares a communion with God. Knowledge, which I don't care how smart you are, you couldn't have without communion with God because it's God who grants the gift of knowledge of supernatural things. Okay. All right. The catechism itself is divided up. Where's my catechism? I dropped it somewhere. Oh. It's divided up into sections. So go back to the beginning here, to your contents. At the very beginning, your contents pages there, you'll see prologue, which is what we're going to hopefully get through tonight. We probably won't. Part one, the profession of faith, which is the creed. So the first part of the catechism is the creed, what we believe. Okay? Turn your page, a couple of pages, and you'll see part two. A few pages on, it starts with uh, page 277 in my, in my thing. Part two, the celebration of the Christian mysteries. What are the Christian mysteries? The sacraments. The sacraments. So part two are the sacraments. The whole study about the sacraments. Okay, part three. I'm writing contents at the very beginning, yeah. Part three, just you gotta see, it's okay. We got part one, and then we got part two, and then we got part three. If you turn your page, you'll see just a little bit. It says what? Life in Christ, morals. It covers the commandments, what we're supposed to do in part three. And the fourth part of the catechism, which brings you to the very end of the catechism, is prayer. Okay? And it says there the Our Father. It goes through the Our Father as the type for all other prayers. The model for all other prayers. Just like the creed is the model for everything we believe. Though it's not, doesn't it go explicit on every detail, it's still the model, the framework. Similarly, the Our Father is the framework for our prayer life. That's the whole catechism. Four parts. It follows the ancient structure of catechesis. Not just the ancient structure of catechisms, although that's true, of catechesis itself. Why do I say that? Because in the early church, catechesis, primarily using the word catechesis, was given to what, uh, what process, what thing did people go through? RCIA, right? Being brought into the church. What called RCIA in the early church? Being brought into the early church, into the church. And that's what catechesis was primarily for. Okay? And so that it's laid out in a structure for those desiring to enter the church. First, what do you have to do? You gotta know what you're doing, what you're gonna believe in. And so the creed is first. Okay? What's next? Well, once you believe, you accept all these truths. Then what? You get baptized. You receive the sacraments. So the sacraments are the second part. Okay? Then what? Once you're, once you're in the church, then what? you got to live the life of the church. Okay? And the fullness of living that life in the church is your communication with God, your prayer life. Okay? So it's that whole structure based upon early catechesis. I'm so, sorry it's so hot here, guys. What are you going to do? Offer it up. Alright, turn to paragraph 19. Paragraph 19. 
prologue? In the prologue, yep. <clears throat> Whenever I reference a paragraph, you don't have to worry about what section because it goes through the whole catechism straight through with my paragraphs. So it doesn't start over at a certain point. You just find it. No, because I have a different version. Paragraph 19. <laughs> Getting the, getting the hang of it? Well, you guys are going to get good at this. Don't worry. I know it's a little confusing at first. I hope it Yeah, we'll get easier. This is just another little point in the prologue. A general point about the layout of the prologue is helpful. The texts of the sacred scripture are often not quoted word for word, but are merely indicated by a reference, as Edmund was pointing out. For a deeper understanding of such passages, the reader should refer to the scriptural text themselves. Such biblical references are a valuable working tool in catechesis. The use of small print in certain passages indicates observations of historical or apologetic nature or supplementary doctrinal explanations. Okay, then it goes on to talk about the quotations also in small print and things like that. So you'll see as we go through, there's all sorts of different ways to try to indicate different texts for you. Most important in what we just read there is the scriptural point. That it's, you know, we're just scratching the surface, especially if we just read the little quote they give us. But if you're interested in that text, you've got to go back to the Bible itself and read it in context to really understand what they're talking about. That goes for me too. As I was preparing today, I had my Bible open and my catechism open, and I kept going back to the Bible to see what it was actually talking about in context. Okay? Further, when you're going back to the Bible, it's not enough to just go and make the reference to Jesus' words or St. Paul's quote that they're making there. But what else? When we're going into the Scriptures... Is it enough to just read one paragraph or one quote? Not only the context of a chapter, but what? The whole book. The whole Bible. So the scriptures are always read in their context. So especially if a quote is being taken in the New Testament, which has a reference to the Old Testament, you got to go there too. Okay? You might be going, oh, this is way too much work. But I'm here to tell you that if you don't, if you want to learn the faith, if you want to learn the faith as an eighth grader, well, just read all, keep reading. But if you want to read the, learn the faith as an adult, to really start to dive into what God wants us to understand, it takes some work. It takes time. It takes getting out on your table and putting out some books and turning off the television and turning off the radio and getting those things out and actually studying. It's not easy to do. You need two lives. You need more than two lives. <laughs> Thank God we have an eternal life. <laughs> All right, finally in the prologue, turn to paragraph 23. The Catechism emphasizes the exposition of doctrine. It seeks to help deepen understanding of faith. In this way, it is oriented toward the maturing of that faith. It's putting down roots in personal life, and it's shining forth in personal conduct. Okay? So that's just to reinforce for us as we make our way into the first section here, that learning these things, if they stay simply, you know, 
learning the, okay, I can memorize this definition. Well, that's not enough. When we go out into our life, it's got to start to make a difference in our heart. Okay, as we learn the commandments, that we have a renewed understanding that every day we walk out there with a better understanding of what it means to live in Jesus Christ. Okay, and if it doesn't start to do that for us, then we're wasting our time at night. Okay? All right. Can I ask a question? Yes. Down on the bottom of this page here, it says 17. that mean page 17 or what? No, that's footnote 17. Okay, okay so then where, where would we look for that? What is for that, that Okay, this is a good example. Yeah, There's all sorts of times in your catechism you're going to see a footnote that you don't understand, and that's a classic one. Oh, it is the, it is the end of 23. There is a list of briefs. I just have to turn there. Steve, you want to go there and find out for us? Hold on, hold on. Slow down. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. On the page that we were reading, that paragraph, the paragraph 23 is footnoted. Nora? Nora, you have to listen. Okay. There's a footnote there that says CT. It's most likely a reference to the Second Vatican Council. Steve's going to tell us what that is. Well, CT says here. Okay, which is a document written, I think, by John Paul II. Okay. He's looking to the back of his catechism under abbreviations, and you can always find it there. Okay, now, once you do that, you say, but I don't know what catechese tridende is. John Paul II, is it say it there? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say it. It's either John Paul II or Paul VI. Yeah, it's a, it's a document written. You can always go on the internet and type that in. Boom, it's going to come up for you. Okay, and you'll know what it is. So if you want to go that far, okay, you'll also a lot of times see re other references that are similar to that. DV is a classic one you're going to see all the time. What's DV? Day variable. It is in the abbreviations list. Yes, it's in the abbreviations list. Okay, but the, what I want you to at this at this stage, it's okay. At this stage, if you don't know what the reference refers to, don't worry about it so much. Okay? Day, well, you know a little Latin. Day Verbum is a document of the Second Vatican Council. Okay? So, okay. Part one, which I had great hopes that we would get through today. I told my wife that I said, either it's going to take us four sessions to get through the first part. Or not the first part, what I just want to cover today. Or we'll be able to get through the whole thing. Well, it looks like we're going to just, what I want to get through today will take us four sessions. So we'll see. We'll go slow. All right. Yeah, we'll go slow. We're not in a hurry. The first part, if you just turn in, turn your pages over a couple pages, you'll see part one, paragraph 26. You see that? Part one is still kind of a prologue in a certain sense. Okay? It kind of gives us a little bit of an overview of man's search for God and God's response to man. In fact, it's divided into three parts. Part one is divided into three parts. Okay? The first part of part one is man's search for God on the natural level. Okay? 
The second part of part one is God's response to man's search for him. Divine revelation. And the third part of the first part is man's response of faith to God's revelation. Okay? So, I hope today we won't get to it, but in the end, to talk about what is faith. We're going to talk about that next time. And what does it mean to have faith? What is faith? How many people give me a good answer think you give me a good answer? What is faith? Belief. What's that? Belief. Yeah, but what's belief? Belief in God. Trust. It's affirming what others have said. Oh, that's a good beginning. Okay? So look, we're all sitting here. We all believe in Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to actually believe? What's the act look like? We're going to talk about that. Okay? I'm sorry, which one? The third one? That's the third part. It's man's response of faith. Okay? Turn to paragraph 30. Paragraph 30. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Although man can forget God or reject Him, he never ceases to call every man to seek Him, so as to find life and happiness. But this search for God demands of man every effort of the intellect, a sound will, an upright heart, as well as the witness of others who teach him to seek. This perfect new data. Uh, who teach him to seek God. You are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom is without measure. And man, so small a part of your creation, wants to praise you. This man, though clothed with mortality and bearing the evidence of sin and the proof that you would stand proud. Despite everything, man, though but a small, though but a small a part of your creation, wants to praise you. You yourself encourage him to delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Okay. What are those numbers on the left? Um, I believe those are references to the um, not the compendium, but the uh, what's it called? Um, no, I believe the references to another book that goes along with the catechism that has explicitly all of the references they're making. Okay, so all the text, all the things they're making, they're making reference to. It's a big book. Okay, but I'll look that up. I think that's the answer. I think it's paragraph. Oh, it is. Okay, you're right. Okay, okay. It's just a cross reference to another one. Okay. Anyways. Anyways, St. Augustine. Yes. Man is made in such a way to desire God. That's what St. Augustine's saying. That's what the church is always taught. Man is restless until he rests in thee. Man is made. We are made in such a way. God has designed us in such a way. That we have something within us which makes us want Him, which makes us desire Him, which makes us love Him. Okay, love is the most fundamental urge of our will, motion of our will. It is our greatest desire. It's our going out to another. Okay, man is made to love God. But 
many people don't believe in God. That's true. We're going to get to that. Don't worry. Okay? Man is made to love God. Why is that? It was God's intention. It is God. Good. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. God knows and loves himself from all eternity. Man is made in that image and likeness to know and love God. We have that built into us, a desire and a capacity within us for that relationship with God. Well, what about the seeking of security? What's that? The man, you know, in the mortals, God, through him, you can have security yes. of going to paradise or something like yes. that. Is that not a, a something in us that we want to seek a kind of security? Uh, yeah, I would say that's part of it. That man has this within him, something lacking which he knows he's supposed to have. So it's a good point. That there's something almost within our being, and it's what St. Augustine's saying, is that in no, we know within us that there's something still which will fulfill us. A certain security, I guess, and that's what you're, that's what you're pointing out. Right. And man is made with that, built with that. It's not something he concocted on his own, but he was literally designed to be that way. Okay? It's the alternative is that you fall into nothingness. Right. You just right. Completely. right. Right. But in order to see your Jesuit would say Yes, fear security. Notice then, with this desire, there is something lacking which we don't have. With all desire, there's something which we don't have that we want to have. Okay, and that's part of that built-in um, capacity within us. Okay? If we really want to get into that and understand that image and likeness which God has made, we got to look at God. And within God, there's a life, a shared life of the Holy Trinity, a life which gives of itself and returns love within itself, within himself. And that's the image that we are made in. An image and likeness of God who lives a life within himself of shared life. And that's what we have within our heart, a desire for that. Look at paragraph 27, which says basically what we've been saying. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. The dignity of man rests above all in the fact that he is called to communion with God. This invitation to converse with God is addressed to man as soon as he comes into being. For if man exists, it is because God has created him through love, and through love continues to hold him in existence. He cannot live fully according to truth unless he freely acknowledges that love, that love, and entrusts himself to his creator. I said we are made with a capacity, and we are made in the image and likeness of God. And yet, man is made lacking. Though he's made in the image and likeness of God, he still lacks something within him. The fullness of that divine life. The fullness of that sharing. 
You remember Adam in the beginning. Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. And yet he is called to the fullness. Some of you have studied the, the scriptures with me. Called to the fullness of the, his relationship with God on the seventh day, the day of covenant. So there's something in Adam, even, that's created impotency, waiting for fulfillment. Okay, and that is true with us also. The desire in us is something like the desire of a child. And when a child is born, my baby gets thirsty. But she doesn't know what she wants, really. Or at least she can't communicate it yet. But when she was first born, she really didn't know what she wanted until we gave her what she wanted, the milk. And as she became used to that, she desired it more and more. The more she tasted of it, the more she wanted it. The more she gets solid food now, the more she wants it. Okay? And man is just like that in his capacity with God. He's born with a certain innate urge or desire for God, and yet even the desire is in a childlike form, which has to be cultivated, which has to be made uh, more mature, if you will. Can I make a comment about this? Sure. Yes. Um, this may sound kind of strange, but you know, when you have a baby... Go ahead, I could learn a few things. First thing you long for is to make you cry. Yes. Because then you know that God has given you that baby, and the baby is alive. Right. Right. are revealing to us. And so it's a great way to be introduced into the whole picture of the scriptures. If someone knows the catechism and then turns to the scriptures, it's going to come together a lot better for them. Sure. Sure. But the two are going to go hand in hand, right? And in fact, the scriptures are the foundation from which all catechesis comes forth. So the catechesis is putting in a succinct manner for us that which the scriptures reveal. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's right. What are the numbers along the side? References to other paragraphs in the Catechism. Am I right? Yes. Paragraph okay, great. Paragraph eighteen. I should have <coughs> Paragraph eighteen uh, in your catechism tells about all that in your prologue. If you want to get a little bit better with the with the way the catechism is designed, read the prologue a few times. Okay? Which, as you can see, I should have read better. I said that we have to cultivate our desire. But desire and love for God, desire and love for anything, is dependent upon what? Knowledge. Knowledge. You can't love what you don't know. So in order to cultivate our desire for God and the things of God, we have to cultivate our knowledge. The more we know, the more capable we are of loving. It doesn't mean the more we know, the more we're going to love. But the more capable we are of loving. God gives us two ways, as the scriptures say, two ways 
before, prior to his formal revelation of himself, two ways to come to know him. Okay? Two ways that natural man outside the church without the Bible can come to know him. What are those two ways? Yeah, creation. Turn your Bibles, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans is after the Gospels, after Acts of the Apostles, and then Romans. Romans chapter what did I say? Chapter 1, what did I say? Chapter 1, verse 18. Verse 18. Come on, Norma, get there, get there. Romans 1, 18. In the New Testament, after the Gospels, after Acts of the Apostles, then Romans. Chapter 1. Don't start reading yet, guys. Don't start reading. Jennifer, you want to read that for us? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His invisible nature, namely His eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give them or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, or birds, or animals, or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, and so on. So he says that these men could have what? They could have known God how? By observing. By observing what? All of creation. But what didn't they do? They didn't observe creation. And they didn't honor God, nor were they thankful. Right. What do we commonly do? Do we observe creation and see God in it on our everyday life? Do we? Some do. Some do. St. Francis did. Okay? Sometimes. Most of the time, what happens to us? Preoccupied. Yeah, most of the time, we're so preoccupied with our life that we completely miss all of these things. The scripture seems that all of creation is singing the glory of God. It's literally shouting out at man. Here I am. See me here. And we completely miss him. So, in order to start to see God, in order to start to know him in his creation, as he's planned for us to know him, we got to slow down a little bit. Okay? That, that, and I literally mean slowing down. Going out and standing in front of a tree and looking at it. Pulling the leaf off, it, off of it and examining it. You are just examine the leaf and how beautiful and wonderful it is. Your hand. I'll, uh, this is one of the first things that caught me about nature when I started to study the faith. Was my hand. That I can literally move my hand as I want. And I just, I don't even have to think about it. I'm telling my hand to do what it's doing. But it's just so automatic. It's an amazing thing. And all of creation is that amazing. We gotta slow down and smell the roses. Right? Yes? You have put a... 
the English poet, I think it's Shirley, he mentioned that what is this life if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. Mm -hmm. That's what you're saying. Right, right, exactly. Look, how many of you guys have walked through the Rose Garden, Father Mackey's Rose Garden? <laughs> Half, maybe, a little bit. On Sunday after Mass, go and walk around the Rose Garden. Just stop, forget everything, and start again to appreciate what God has planned. Because all of creation, it's not sitting there shouting out for just for those that don't believe. It's for us so that as we walk through our daily life, we come to know Him by everywhere we turn, every tree we look at, every flower we look at. If we were patient enough, if we had the practice of seeing, of meditating on nature, we would suddenly, all of a sudden, creation would start to become exactly what it's supposed to be for us, that catechetical book. We wouldn't need this. Well, that's not true. It's a further revelation. But, but we would walk through our day and all of creation would be our catechetical book. Jesus began his ministry, basically, in the, in the, in the gospel, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing he began to teach the multitudes was to slow down, take no thought for tomorrow, and consider the lilies how they grow. That's a good point. And he began. Yeah. He started with pointing them toward nature. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's also a, a psalm in, in Scripture that says, yeah. the trees praise the Lord, the flowers praise the Lord, right. the fish praise the Lord. That's right. I often think of like the trees all going up to heaven. Yeah. They're all everything is praising Go God. Go stand out here in the tree and watch it praise the Lord sometime. It does. If you look at nature, it all is very silent. It all comes up right. in the silence of, of God. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. In paragraph thirty-two. Paragraph thirty-two. In your catechism. We're going to go back and forth. Never you close your catechism. You've got to keep it open. Paragraph 32. Skip down to the second quotation in paragraph 32. The, second, the quotations are the smaller type. The second paragraph. The second quotation. And St. Augustine. You see that? And St. Augustine issues this challenge. Question the beauty of the earth. Question the beauty of the sea. Question the beauty of the air. Descending and diffusing itself. Question the beauty of the sky. Question all these realities. All respond. See, we are beautiful. Their beauty is a profession or confession. These beauties are subject to change. Who made them? If not the beautiful one, who is not subject to change. Okay? That all of creation is showing forth the glory of God. The second way we can come to know God in nature is how? How? From a natural standpoint. By our own knowledge. By our, well, by our reason. By looking at our reason. By looking at the fact that we have a reason. Okay? By looking at man and seeing with him, within him something more than just the material. The next paragraph, 33. 
The human person with his openness to truth and beauty, his sense of moral goodness, his freedom and the voice of his conscience, with his longings for the infinite and for happiness, man questions himself about God's existence. In all this, he discerns signs of his spiritual soul. The soul, the seed of eternity, we bear in ourselves, irreducible to merely material, can have its origin only in God. So the Catechism saying, the Church is saying, even man who doesn't have this book, doesn't have the scriptures, doesn't know the church, doesn't know Jesus Christ, can at least come to know God through his creation. And that's why his creation was made, to glorify him and to show forth his own beauty and his own glory. Okay? Paragraph 34. The world and man attest that they contain within themselves neither their first principle nor their final end. It's saying, it, it attests that their beginning is not within themselves. They came from somewhere. And their final end, their perfection or their happiness is something in which they do not find in themselves but in another. But rather that they participate in being itself, which alone is without origin or end. Thus, in different ways, man can come to know that there exists a reality which is the first cause and final end of all things, a reality that everyone calls God. We're way out of time. So, here's what I want you to do. We started out a little slow. We're going to get the hang of using the catechism a little bit more. What I'd like you to do, if you have time, is to scan, at least scan over, up to page uh, 40, well, no, uh, paragraph 175, paragraph 175, just to scan over it and to get a sense of what it's talking about, because paragraph 175. From, from, from 1 to 175? Well, no, we're on, basically, what, what was the last quote? Yeah, so... So it's, you know, whatever, 140 paragraphs, not that much. Scan over it. At least read the, the headings to get the structure of the catechism. Don't worry. We're going to be able to go through that a lot faster. I just say I don't know. I'm going to put your name on the board. No. Um, and that way, what will happen is you'll start to become a little bit better with the catechism. We'll go a little quicker through it. You remember when we first started doing Bible studies? It was really, really slow, and we got better and better. It's the same with the catechism. We'll get better and better at using it, and then you guys can be able to pull out things and say, hey, wait, you missed this point. It's very interesting. Okay? So uh, we'll get through all of that next time, I promise. Which is great because I don't have to prepare any more notes. <laughs> um, those handouts I gave you, uh, there's one thing is that the handout, which is like a photocopy and it's kind of in two different directions, that's St. Thomas's five proofs for the existence of God, which he makes from reason alone. He says, from reason alone, I can prove God exists in five ways. Okay? It's a little bit heavy duty, but there it is for you, and it's a help. The other one, bring back next time, 
because we're going to have a chance to look at it, which is Pius XII's declaration on the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which will be next Tuesday. We'll do this the night, the day before the feast, right? Because next Wednesday is the feast day. So we have a chance to look at the document itself in part, at least. Okay? And it'll be helpful for us. All right. Let's conclude in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.